Jack Bensink, president of Bensink Farms Hunting Preserve. This is Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Soholt. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Jack, what does land use, you know, owning land, using the land, what does that mean to you as someone who's grown up in Iowa? Really, we could probably call it the land use state, right? What what does that mean to you? Well, I've been on the farm my entire life. And when we first started farming, we were full tillage. We tilled six inches deep and made it look like a super nice garden. And it was about 20 years of doing that, and all of our ponds silted in and were so full of dirt they didn't work right anymore. Hmm. And my dad Did all your and I, fish die? Or? Yes, the fish weren't there anymore. They were too shallow. Oh. Hmm. So we decided we had to quit doing what we were doing. And in the early 80s, we became no-till farmers. Wow. Were you the first ones in the area? We were the first ones in our area, not the first ones in the county, but close to it. What did it, Was anyone making fun of you for it at the time? Everyone was, because there weren't chemicals invented. They thought, how are you ever going to control the weeds? How so, did you? Well, at first, it was a real struggle. That first year in beans, we're glad we had over the hill where nobody could see it, because it was nothing <laughs> but a bunch of weeds. <laughs> but after that, we learned that if you ran the combine right and put enough cover down and didn't till it, and kill the weeds with chemicals that after a few years there was fewer weed seed on the surface to grow and it was easier Mm. and then we rotated corn and beans so you'd have different kind of chemicals and different things trying to grow and different means of controlling them and at that time we still had cattle and we would have hay and oats a real weedy field would go into oats then hay and then corn and the weeds would be less and less hmm Sorry, Ken, so, I totally sidelined no, your question. No, that was that was great. That's that's what we want to get to. So so you uh noticed a problem and you immediately made went and made an adjustment. And uh, I mean that had to like it's easy enough to say that, right? And I think I'm glad Nick asked about the pressure because Carol, our founder, he did a similar thing right around the same time. He decided to switch to no till uh ag practice and he got a lot of criticism from from other farmers, you know. And I think he even said, "People said I would never let anybody farm my ground that way." Yeah. And he's pretty open. He says he says it really hurt his feelings. You know, it was it was not a fun time. But so I mean, like, what were those discussions like with your dad when you guys were deciding to do that? Well, at first we only farmed our own farm. We didn't have to worry about anybody else. But then as we decided we needed more income and tried to rent farms, we ran into that problem. Hmm. We did have to find a mindset like ours to find ground to rent. Wow. Because people wouldn't rent to us because we no-tilled. So they thought you were treating, you were being bad to the land. They called it ugly farming. You can't have that like that. It has to be black before you plant. Mm. Yeah. Ugly farming. Isn't that crazy? Like, so we, 
um, cell backyard pollinator. And actually a big problem people run into is their neighbors report them to the city because the first two years, there's a lot of weeds. There's not very many flowers and prairie isn't cut and dry in rows. You know what I mean? Like you can mow your grass in rows or you plant uh, corn and beans in rows. And we really like these categories, but um, people will, will literally say, yeah, I'm okay with killing that part of the earth as long as it looks good. And it's just a wild, wild thought. Well, it's perfectly true. Uh, people look at our prairie farm and our CRP and they think all I'm growing is a bunch of weeds. Mm-hmm. But the mindset is wrong. A weed is a plant. A flower is a plant. The only difference is location. Mm-hmm. If it's where you want it to grow, it's a flower or it's a growing plant. If it's not where you want it to grow, it's a weed. It can yeah. be the exact same plant. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And and those those criticisms, I think, thankfully, you know, well, maybe I'll ask you this way. Have you had interaction with any of those who criticized what you guys were doing? You don't have to name any names, of course, but but was there ever anybody who said, you know what, you guys were right, you know, everyone's doing no-till now, you know. And did, did you guys ever get any of that, like that, that satisfaction or, you know, maybe somebody admitted, yeah, you guys had it right. Absolutely. Eventually all of our landlords had us no till. We even had one that was so picky. He lived right next to us. He would cultivate four or five times. He beat his soil to death. Hmm. Started running into dust. One year it was really wet and we didn't have time to till it. We went ahead and planted it. He lived in town. He came out he saw the farm he goes, what are those marks out there? We told him we planted it. He about had a heart attack. He was so <laughs> mad at that. It was unbelievable. We had the best crop he ever had off that farm that year. Wow. Mm. So he changed his mindset in one year, and we were okay after that. Do we those had- farmers come back and actually say, like, I was wrong, you were right? Or do they just kind of not bring it up again and passively? <laughs> just- they they just kind of pass it on and don't say anything. Yeah, yeah. But we did have other neighbors and people come up and say, we want you to farm our farm because you do. And we had several farmers do that over the years. It finally paid off the other direction. Yeah. It was usually hilly ground we got to farm, you know, and not the best ground. But when dad and I were looking for ground to keep us busy and to raise our families, we were ready to take whatever we could. So we did. We farmed a lot of hills. So, what, when you were a kid, your dad could farm his farm and it was okay. But as you started getting older and you had a family and. Uh, you need, you started to need a bigger farm in order to make ends meet. Is that when you guys started to go get other renting areas? Correct. When it gets to the point to where you can't make enough off your ground and everybody's starting to get bigger equipment and farm more ground to make more money, you can only make so much money off an acre at that time especially. So the only way to make more money was farm more acres yeah. mm. or specialize. We went into pigs heavy in 1975 and either I graduated high school. We quit raising cattle and concentrate on pigs and started doing confinement more progressive, uh, farming quicker, sooner together, weaning sooner. And we got to be a pretty big hog farmer. But by the year 2000, the big, huge corporations chased us right out of business. Mm. So that's when we decided we had to do something besides raise pigs. It took me a couple of years to decide what, and that's when I started the hunting farm and started needing CRP acres. Mm. Mm. Okay, so what was that like? Was that a was that your idea, the hunting farm, or was it your dad's? 
my dad never hunted. Okay. I did not know how to hunt. <laughs> <laughs> I married a lady that was a hunter. Okay. Her brothers were hunters. Is that Cindy? No, my first wife was Millie, and she was from Des Moines. Millie. She died of cancer 22 years ago. Mm. Oh, sorry to hear that. I met her in 1984, and I lived in Des Moines for three and a half years with her. We finally built a house for Dad, moved her and her family to the country, which she loved. So we lived in the country and started doing hunting then because she knew how to hunt, and she bought me my first gun. Mm. So we quit raising pigs. Her brother came over. He said, you should start a hunting preserve. And a couple other friends go, yeah, we go this place over by Prairie City, but you have the same kind of ground. You could do the same thing. And I said, what's that? <laughs> I used to drive by there with my grain truck and would see guys out there with their dogs and would see a CRP fields. And I had a couple little hills of CRP. So I started the business. Well, it didn't take long to find out that two 10-acre fields are not a hunting farm. Yeah. A bunch yeah. of ponds and waste ground are not a hunting farm. So I got together with the uh, extension office and then eventually the soil office and the D.C. at the Marion County Soil and Water Office, um, Marvin Minshing. He was in Marion County Pheasants Forever, and he was the D.C., and he helped me lay out 30 acres of contour buffer strips that are still in use on my farm 30 years ago we put them in. Wow. Tw- excuse me, 20 what, years ago we put them in. What grasses are in those? Well, at that time, it was Pheasants Forever premium nesting cover. Okay. Uh, today, it's a lot of big blue and some switch glass, switch grass, some little blue stem, a uh, little Canadian wild rice still surviving, mm. and some uh, grama. And yep. then a lot of flowers, if you burn it the right time, the flowers come When back. do you have to burn it to get those flowers? We like to burn in March and April after the hunting season ends, but it's best to burn in the fall to get mm-hmm. the flowers to come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The grasses come back good if you burn in the spring, and the flowers come back good if you burn in the fall. What time, What in the fall, what, what kind of time? And that seems like it's kind of a conflict of interest with the hunting season you know that's why i don't i can't burn mine in the fall because then i don't have cover to hunt in have you thought about taking just small sections maybe 10 acres at a time and burning them out that's how i've come to know that that's what is best to burn my new cover when i get seed from you guys and put in brand new cover i have awesome flowers the first three or four years and again after i do mid-contract management Hmm. And so the trick is to burn the right time before the flowers are above ground and starting to grow, and mm-hmm. then they warm the soil up and they do okay. Yeah. Also, we did not tell him to say he got his seed from us. That was just a fun tidbit. Yeah. Uh, the reason we actually asked him out, for anyone who's wondering why why Bensink, why Bensink Farms, there are other hunting preserves that you could have had out. Um, uh, but uh, Jack's the only one that I met that actually speaks his mind on what he believes in. Um, everyone else, no... I, I won't say that. A lot of them, when I talk to them on the phone, they seem like uh, salesmen. So they would come here and then they'd pitch their ideas. But Jack believes some things and says what he believes and has has made it work. You know, he's proof that you don't have to fully row crop your whole farm in order to uh, in order to make it work. So that's part of the reason we had him out. And he is a good guy. We I know a bunch of people that know him in the area where we live just 20 minutes apart from each other. And uh, a very well-respected guy, so really wanted to have you, and I appreciate you coming out and spending the time with us. That was really kind of you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the comments. That was wonderful to hear. Yeah, man. 
So you made your transition. You, you came out of the, the corn and bean and, and really even a lot of other stuff too. I mean, you guys were, had sound like a four crop rotation for a while. And that's what, I mean, when, when you were growing up, was that pretty much every farm? Was it still four crop rotations? Absolutely. When I was young and first started farming, even everybody had cows, pigs, and chickens and lived off their farm and their own food supply was their farm and the Mm. animals they raised. You didn't go to the grocery store and buy hardly anything. You took animals to the locker and had it processed. Mm. And everybody had to have a rotation to feed those cattle and horses. So you would have your oats to get your hay started. You'd have your hay. The hay would help get the beans going. Of course, we didn't grow beans until the 80s. Before that, beans weren't even a product. Mm. There was no soybeans grown in this part of the country. But once we started growing them, then we had another solution to the rotation because beans put nitrogen in the ground for corn. Right. Yeah. So now you didn't have to buy as much corn. Well, at first we didn't buy corn anyway. We had fertilizer. Well, now we had fertilizer you could purchase. So people thought, I don't have to have all this livestock. I can farm more ground, buy the fertilizer, and not have to have the livestock in specializing grain crop. Mm-hmm. That yeah. stopped all the fences and all the livestock and all the rotational grazing, all the conservation that we did, all of the, the service of the soil by rotation went out the door. And it was make it black, put that corn and bean crop in, and harvest every single thing you can off of it, which tends to rape the soil of the micronutrients and the microbiological activity. Mm-hmm. That has to happen for the soil to be healthy, for it to be full tilth to have the potential to hold water for it to be fertile and have organic matter lack of organic matter makes soil hard water Mm. runs off organic matter loosens the soil up and water runs in the plants that you guys sell are the perfect thing for opening up the soil to let the water run in the strips that we put in 20 years ago are a prime example that they stop all the water from running down the hill. Hmm. They stop all the wind erosion. They keep our crop ground in good shape under it for future farming. And below it is in good shape because it stops the erosion. So we have the strips we can hunt in. We have the ground in between we can farm. And we've made our 520-acre farm work two ways. We can hunt on it and make an income. We can farm it and make an income. We can make a living off of just our 520 acres and not have to farm thousands like we used to, mm-hmm. to still be busy and be comfortable. And we can do it all at home and drive our tractor home every day because what we farm is within sight of the house. That's Man. awesome. That's crazy. It, I, was, I actually hunted out at your preserve this last, uh, it was right towards the tail end of the season for you guys. I think it was, you guys closed at the end of March, right? Isn't that? Correct. We go from September 1st to March 31st. Yep. September 1st. That's a long season for you guys. Seven full months every day, sunrise to sunset. So basically as long, whenever the grass is long enough to hold birds, is that when you do it? When the weather's cool enough for a dog. Ah, interesting. We have to stop in March because the breeding season for the birds. You don't want to be out mm -hmm. there running around when birds are trying to nest. Yeah. And in the fall, you don't want to hunt when it's so hot the dog's going to have issue and not be able to. So basically, we're open right now in September, and it's been way too warm. 
I do have a whole bunch of people coming this weekend because it's supposed to finally cool yeah. off and be cool enough for a dog to scent and smell rather than pant and look for a pond. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, now, when I was there, I talked to you just for a few minutes, and you had you had told me on our 520 acres, I think it was you said you had, was it three people that are employed off those? Uh, full-time, yes. Wow. Full-time. And then we have several part-time people as well. I've only heard of one other farm that has done that. And that's us. Yeah. 500 acres? My goodness. That's like a, a part-time hobby farm And if you're just doing row crop. That's what I tell people. I've only got a couple hundred acres left that I plant because 250 of it is in CRP, which still takes a lot of time to manage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I take a good care of it because mine is more than just CRP like mm-hmm. most farmers. I use mine to generate income from the hunters. I, and, thought, I thought you couldn't make secondary income off of CRP. There is only one thing you're allowed to do on CRP. Hunt. Hunt. Yeah, because I know that mm. people will be like, hey, can I hand collect the seed you uh, planted out here? And I'm like, well, yeah, but you can give it to us. We can't buy it from you. Right, um, yeah. And people, well, what about under the table? I'm like, no, I'm not paying $10,000 under the table <laughs> where the IRS is going to freaking kill us, you know? Uh, well, not just that, but I mean, if you're in violation of a CRP contract, you lose. Oh, yeah, you, you get caught, your, yeah. You're breach of your contract. And something that most people don't realize is a huge percentage of our income is through government, through government contracts. So there's a few of us companies that are under scrutiny a lot, Right, because they're trying to make sure, because we're responsible for thousands and thousands. Yeah, and of rightly acres so. Of you know, it's yeah. taxpayer, it's taxpayer yeah, dollars. Absolutely, should be responsibly handled. And People, because so. you know, the government will pay like fifty percent to plant or to put for the seed when you're going into a CRP contract. And people will be like, well, can you just double the bill? That way they pay me back for all of it. And uh, I tell them, I will double your bill, but you have to write me a check for the full thing because if I get caught doing that and you get caught doing that, like. That's like a federal offense, you know, trying to scam uh, government money is that's no, no small deal. But yeah, we keep it above board here. <laughs> yeah, we, we try our best to and, and uh, keep our books clean and our fields cleaner. Nice job, Kent. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just so encouraging that somebody's thinking about it that way and doing it, too, because I think that's a criticism for alternative cropping, alternative land use is. Oh, that, you know, that's all kumbaya. That sounds nice. Yep. We wish it could be that way, but it's not actually doable. But when you see somebody who's doing it, that's that's very encouraging. Now, admittedly, not you can't have every farmer having a hunting preserve or there'd be no hunting preserves. Yeah. <laughs> but but the idea is be creative. Find find something that that does work so that you can you can be a little bit more diverse and and do more with less like you guys have now another big part of your operation is and people may be wondering this okay how are that i mean i get it you have 250 acres of pheasant and quail habitat but if if anyone listening is a hardcore bird hunter you know that if you want to if you're hunting wild birds in Iowa, you're probably going to have to walk on more than 250 acres in a day to shoot a limit of birds, let alone for, you know, dozens of hunters coming through. You got to have more than, than wild birds living on, on your operation. So how do you guys uh, source your, are are you raising them yourself? Are you, uh, uh, purchasing birds? Uh, how, how do you, uh, supply enough game birds 
to keep your hunters happy and coming back. Well, that's changed a lot over the years. Uh, when I first started this, I thought I've raised chickens and other exotic birds and a few things for fun. I would do it all. And I had the breeding stock of quail and chucker and pheasant. But you have to have a lot of pins to have breeding stock and have all the ages that are growing up, mm. have enough pins to get them full mature and put them out for hunters to hunt and keep track of it all. So as it got bigger and started using and needing more birds, I decided I would concentrate more on raising the birds and not on propagation. <coughs> so I buy day-old chicks. Okay. And I did that for many years. But as we expanded and got bigger... I either had to build more pins or start buying full-grown birds. So mm. now I do a combination. I buy about 7,000 day-old chicks a year, mm. and then I probably buy about five or 6,000 full-grown birds as well. Okay. Mm. Last year, we put out 10,000 pheasants, 6,000 chucker, wow. and 1,500 quail wow. in seven months' time on my farm for people to shoot at. How many of those came back? About three, four. Some get harvested. Okay. Huh. So the others are just making it out there and either adding to the population or getting eaten by a coyote. So not just coyotes, hawks, foxes, hawks, owls, eagles, did that. raccoons, mink, <laughs> raccoons, possums. As it turns out, everything that lives in Iowa likes pheasants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> including us, including including humans. us. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, we're feeding generations of wildlife with the wildlife we put out there, and they live on our farm. We have a a farm that's all hills. And so with the five ponds and the three creeks, it's split up into multiple pieces. So we can put out seven groups of hunters at the same time in a morning. They wow. hunt till noon, put out seven more in the afternoon. So on a good busy day, we'll put out 14 groups, as many as 40 people, wow. and a couple hundred birds how, in one day. How big hunt. is a parcel? Uh, it varies. Some of them are only 12 or 15 acres, and some of them are 120 acres. So... How like is is the twelve acre piece cheaper to rent than the hundred and twenty or you pay by the bird. Oh. So if somebody wants to come and hunt, they give me a hundred dollars, they get an area for a half a day and they put whatever they want for birds in it, and they go out and shoot whatever they can find. Or if they're a member, they just tell me how many birds they want out that day. That's I put out what they want. They pay for what they want released. And they go out and they can shoot and harvest whatever them and their dog can find. So basically you sell birds. Correct. Man, how many, uh, or, okay, I really want to know, have you ever thought about doing prairie chickens? I don't have that on my license, and I'd have to completely redo things to get that on my license, and mm. I don't know anything about raising them. What do you mean you'd have to completely redo things to? Um, I have a license with the state of Iowa that only covers pheasant, chucker, and quail, and prairie chicken isn't even in the offering. Another thing is, uh, uh, what is it called? A type of chucker that's up north, uh, Hun, Hungarian partridge. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. That's only the thing that I can even get on my license. I don't know if we're even allowed to sell them in the state of Iowa. Hmm. Now, those those are, there's a huntable population of those in Iowa. Prairie uh, chickens? No, a Hungar oh, Hungarian, Hungarian partridge. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. That's and, fascinating. And, uh, yeah, that's interesting that, and, and it can't just be because, well, we don't want you hunting, uh, you know, or you don't, we don't want you releasing 
uh, birds that we already have a wild population because that's the case for pheasants and, and quail. You know, we, we obviously have that, which people are probably listening in. They're wondering, well, how do you know that your hunters are out there just shooting pen release birds and they're not taking wild quail and wild pheasants? And I think the answer to that is you don't, but hunters are required to purchase a, a special preserve license allowance right on their normal hunting license isn't that correct if they have a normal statewide hunting license that's all they need okay mm-hmm. if they have no license at all they have to get one and can get a preserve one cheaper okay oh so the preserve license is only seven dollars you need a habitat stamp for fifteen dollars so for twenty two dollars you can be a resident or a non-resident and buy a preserve only license good for any preserve in the state for a whole hunting season Okay. What's blowing my mind is is people come to your place, and I'm not, I mean, you've been doing it for years, so obviously there's some success there and you're making good decisions, but they walk out into 15 acres and then they're happy with that. Like they're they're okay with that. You know, in in one of the smaller parcels. Yeah, if you're just by yourself with a a puppy maybe, and you only want two or three birds, and you only have so much time to kill... You want to get your hunt in and get it out and get it over with. If you're training a pup, there's two things that have to happen. One, you have to have grass and you have to have birds. And if you go out wild bird hunting, you might walk in grass for days and the puppy doesn't learn anything. Right. Yeah. So what we really specialize in is dog training. Mm-hmm. You have a young dog. You have a brand new dog. You have a green dog. It's never seen a bird. You bring it to my place and we'll give it that what they call it, the uh, the light comes on by the time yeah, they're done. They get birdie. They see a bird. They realize my owner wants me to find that bird and is happy if I bring it back to him. We'll take a bird and a dog and a pen and put it in this big open pen that nothing's in there but that bird and dog and let that bird run around the dog, find it, and catch it and bring it to the owner. Mm. And the owner praises him and takes the bird. Yeah. And then the dog goes, oh, that was fun. Well, now when you get out in the grass and he smells the bird, he goes, oh, I know that smell. Dad liked it when I chased it. Mm-hmm. Dad liked it when I brought it mm-hmm. back. And if you go wild bird hunting and just take your puppy out, you might go 10 times before you get the experience yeah. of finding a bird, getting it up, shooting it, dropping it, and the dog finding it and retrieving it. Yeah. yeah. We can expedite that learning process. Man. Yeah. There's a ton of value there. I So I'm somebody who likes to do a lot of hunting and, and uh um, last year going to your place was the first time I had hunted a preserve and all the rest have been wild bird hunting. And, um, I have enough friends to say, man, I've always considered going to a preserve just to like maybe at the start of the season to get my dog back in the mode of hunting. And, um, now there are people who are just very hardcore, uh, you know, gun dog trainers and they purchase their own birds and, and they're, you know, they'll go out on their own property because you're allowed to do this. Yeah, I think you have to get a special permit again from the state to do this. But they can buy birds, whether it be, I think they do pigeons a lot, but also uh, they'll purchase pheasants and, and they'll release them out of a trap and they'll do live bird training with their dog throughout the year. So there are people that do that, but most people aren't going to do that. And so they'll go there. And I saw this happen with my dogs as well because – you know, kind of a a sad story about, well, pheasants, let's just talk about pheasants in general in Iowa. It's a weird story, right? Pheasants, not native to Iowa, 
But yet we're one of, I think, the earliest states to have a wild pheasant population. I believe Oregon was the first state. Well, that's where they were brought first. Right, right. They were the first state to have a wild pheasant population. I believe like in the 1890s, they released some pheasants um, in Oregon. And then I think Iowa is like number two or number three. They, They took some. And I think pheasants are from the same region that chickens originate from. It could be, yeah. They're an Asian, Asian species. Yeah, Southeast Asian. Um, but so so right there, and and you'll notice our logo, you know, Hoxie Native Seeds, we have a pheasant, and that sometimes people will criticize that. You'll be like, oh, native seeds, you don't even have a native bird. And it's like, but that's part of the story, you know. Mm-hmm. We don't, so yeah. much of what we had is gone, and pheasants, fortunately, have been able to make a go of it in this highly, highly, highly modified landscape. And, uh, so, so we, we celebrate pheasants here. It's great that they can stick around. Yeah, sure. It'd be awesome if we still had prairie chickens like we had at one time, like Nick was talking about, but we actually, after releasing pheasants into Iowa, I've heard many people say that at one time, Iowa was as good as it got for, for pheasant hunting. Um, now everyone thinks of South Dakota that way. But people said Iowa was comparable to South Dakota. When did that time. die off in 08? Yeah, in like the, the mid the, mid 2000s after the ethanol, ethanol uh, push came and and uh, so many fence rows went out where you had these strips of habitat and uh, just a lot of other acres where you had pheasant habitat ended up getting uh, dozed and tilled to make way for more corn production. And now kind of the the sad story is like jack was saying you could take a dog out and hunt crp strips or hunt creek you know the banks of creeks and you could go a lot of hunts especially with a new dog who doesn't quite know what they're looking for yet and um just come up empty and your dog doesn't get that reinforcement that um they need from seeing a live bird and so last year it was after the hunting season that I went and I, my dog's got a few birds up last year during the regular hunting season. But when I took them to Jack's farm, they, uh, my female who is a half Brittany, half poodle. So, uh, two, you know, people don't know that about poodles, but that's a historic, historically well-known hunting breed and Brittany's of course are about as you know as iconic as it gets in the bird dog world but but uh she like came alive at at uh jack's uh at bensing's uh she just she was on fire that day Mm -hmm. and it was because she was in this target rich environment where it's like like she before that she'd shown some good promise um but now it's like like Jack said, the the green light went on in her head, and it's like this is what this is what I'm meant to do, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and so there's a ton of value there, a ton of value uh, for people going out to do an operation. And even to answer your question too, more directly, Nick, on 15 acres with that many targets, your dogs are busy for those whole 15 acres. Whereas you could walk 15 acres of CRP looking for wild birds and you might get one or two birds up in that 15 acres, depending on what's going around, going on around there. Yeah. You know, so ton of value, even in just a small amount of acres. Man. Do you ever 
grow uh, pheasants for raise pheasants for anyone else? Sell them off wholesale to other hunting reserves, or no? I never have. We've always just done what we needed for us, and our place has gotten so busy that now I have a couple of people that do nothing but raise birds for me. Wow! I mm. mean, this the one guy retired from his regular job just to raise birds, and he raises pheasants just for me. That's what he does. Wow! wow. You create you created a micro industry there, where, where somebody else can live on a farm and do, <laughs> you know, yeah. a farming operation that isn't the prescribed method of CAFOs and And you're adding so much real value to the world you're adding an experience with nature you're adding food you're adding a trainable experience for the dogs you're adding a bonding experience between families like there's tons of value I'm like I'm like walking through it in my mind and it's just ideal because economically and um, I don't know like spiritually or whatever you want to say where people are connecting with land is that's huge, and and uh, I think that's really important. I uh, I keep thinking we should raise prairie chickens here and release them, let people hunt them. But how many acres do you need to have to be considered a hunting reserve? I believe the license requires you to have a minimum of three hundred. Three hundred, hmm. and they have to be all connected, or? Uh, yes, the three hundred has to be in one piece. Okay. Huh. And you have to have control of it for five years. Not like you rent it from somebody for a year. You have to have a contract or own it. And let's see. The other rules are uh, extra liability insurance and signs all the way around the perimeter that say license hunting preserve every 500 feet. That way anybody hunting a lot of knows signs. where the line's at. Yeah. yeah. Well, so back to the pheasants. I'm very curious because raising yeah, what's I, it, what's it like compared to raising yeah. domestic chickens? Like chick, yeah, chickens or turkeys or guineas. My family has been raising birds as long as I can remember. When I was young, my grandparents had four or five hundred egg-laying hens, and we'd gather three hundred and some eggs a day. Wow, who's Whoa. we? You and your siblings? Or? Well, my grandparents and I. I was the youngest of the kids, ah. so I got stuck with helping grandparents. We all lived in the same house share, <laughs> and you then, all lived in the same house share. Two like, houses in the same yeah, yard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My two brothers and my parents and I lived in one house, and about 200 feet away, there was another house that my grandparents lived in. I've got in-laws who do that today, and at first you hear it, and you're like, man, that's kind of weird. They love it. They say it is the best thing. The, grand, the grandparents are really connected with the grandkids. Everyone helps each other out. They're one big family unit, and, and you know, it, it's just really cool. But anyway, so you, you collected 300 eggs a day. Yes, and so I, I knew about raising chickens, and I didn't miss them when I left. But <laughs> I, started, I started raising pigs in massive quantity in 75. And by the year 2000, I crunched five years' worth of numbers, and the cycle goes up and down so bad that three of those years we made money, and two of those years we lost money. Wow. Hmm. Just but, because of how many died? No, because the market went up and down so viciously it cycles where a bunch of people get in and raise more pigs and overdo supply so the price goes down and after five years i averaged out all the numbers and i lost money on the pigs Mm, and i looked at my dad and i said there's got to be an easier way to lose money yeah we were working ourselves to death raising pigs yeah and it got the point where i thought i can't sustain working this hard how many pigs was that well, at that time, we farrowed every five weeks, and we had a 30-sow 
30 sow shed. Okay. So we would have a bunch of 30 sows having babies every five weeks year round. You know, you can make money if you just turn that shed into like a 4,000 sow shed. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what they wanted us to do when we quit. Yeah. Big companies came and says, you put up a big confinement and we'll bring the pigs and you can raise them. And I said, fine. How much of my feed do I get to feed them? They said, none. All the feed comes in because it has to be rolled in a roller mill. We have to produce the feed. I said, so what is my advantage to having your pigs? Oh, you get the manure. I said, I don't want that much poop. Yeah. yeah. I don't want the pigs on my farm and the flies and the smell if I can't feed them my corn. Mm-hmm. I raised pigs because that's how I made money off my corn. Yeah. So mm. we quit raising pigs. And all my friends said, how in the world are you going to make money hunting? You can walk out your door and shoot three pheasants before you walk to your third pond. I don't understand how people are going to pay to do that. I said, well, I lived in Des Moines for three and a half years. There are people in Des Moines that will pay because they don't have a place to go. Yeah. And I'm going to give it a shot. I'm still going to farm ground. So after the first couple years, I was doing very good with the hunting. People didn't know I was there. I had to go out and advertise, and I had to have more CRP. Mm. So we expanded CRP, and I started letting people know I was there. How did you do that? I'd go to a trade show for boats and for camping and for hunting and fishing and buy a booth and set up a little booth and sit there with my hunting dog and flyers and brochures on my cover and show stuff and talk to people. Nice. The only way I could sell my farm is to talk to people myself, it seems like. Yeah. So I did that for several years. And after we got busier, uh, word of mouth has worked really well. Yeah. And I discovered that I really don't like computers. But when that came around and I got on the computer and started throwing a few things out there on the internet, it turns out that that is one of the best advertisers there is is satisfied mm. customers posting their fun at the farm yeah what we do is create memories everybody mm-hmm. takes a picture of their memory we yeah. create a place to take pictures with our name on it yeah put birds up hang them up take a picture post it on the internet yeah word of mouth satisfied customers i don't advertise anymore and i'm just about as busy as i can possibly be because i've got satisfied customers who are I telling have, their friends Telling their friends, yeah. telling their relatives, yeah. oh, where do you go to train your dog? Where do you keep? And some of them are on their third dog. I have people been with me since Whoa. the beginning. Wow. That's really cool. When we first started, people thought there aren't enough pheasants to keep everybody happy. You, you can go out and hunt. You don't need a hunting farm. And as cover went away and more and more people hunted, it got to the point where you really wanted to hunt, you about had to go to a preserve because there were no birds. Well, now birds are coming back again. So people are getting back into it. So they're getting a puppy. Well, now you have to have a place to train the dog. Yeah. So I cycled in at a time when there wasn't very many people using preserve to now 21 years later. I'm on my 21st season. There are a lot of people that, like you said, use a preserve before season starts Mm -hmm. to get their dog warmed up and practiced. Uses it after season ends because, well, it's warm out. Goose hunting's over, deer hunting's over. I want to go shoot something. In March, we're still open. Yeah. Wow. So our season caters to the person that wants to go hunt for a long time or for the one that can only go once in a while and has to mm. time it when they can, or you have a puppy. And then there's the guy that just has a lot of money and not much time. I don't want to drive all over. I want to go to a spot, hop out, shoot my birds, grab my dog, and go home. Mm-hmm. And that happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Do you hunt out there at all? I used to, and I got uh, a back injury years ago and mm. knee injuries for my pigs. 
So now I've had both shoulders operated on, both knees replaced, and my back worked on. I think I'm going to try it again. Yeah. I'm getting yeah, fixed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm on my fourth dog, and it's 10. So if I don't go pretty quick, I'll have to buy a puppy again because my dog's getting old. But I used to hunt a lot, and I love doing it. And it's it helps that I know how to hunt, so I know how to teach my people to plant yeah, the birds right. and can cater to the hunter. And they walk in, and they have a dog. They don't know anything about it. I go, well, the wind's blowing this direction. You got this kind of dog. We're going to give you this kind of cover. You're going to start here. You're going to walk into the wind. We're going to put your birds here, here, and here. We're going to tie a little ribbon where we put your bird. That's for you to make the dog look there to find the scent track where it starts. Mm. The bird won't be there anymore, Mm -hmm. but the scent will be. Mm. And that's how we get people and dogs trained and help them find their way around our farm. We do a lot of things that cater to the person. Or we have guys that come in and go, I want 10 pheasants in that field, don't know anything about them, put them out there. We'll find them. Because they have an experienced dog. They have two or three dogs. And they don't want help. So we'll cater to whatever the client wants. Yeah. What's the biggest party you'll cater to? Um, We don't want more than five or six hunters in a group if we're guiding for them. But we have groups of as many as 30 or 40 people that come out and set the whole farm back for them for a day. Mm-hmm. Wow. The Wyckoff family from Carlisle, they come out and bring 28 to 30 family members every year, and we set a whole day and a whole farm aside for them. That's wow. really cool. Now, you know, something that listeners are probably thinking of, and I, I'm sure Nick is thinking of, and I'm definitely thinking of, is safety. Like you mentioned, you have to have the extra liability insurance. That seems obvious. Um, but you got to put a lot of planning into how all those different pieces can be running at the same time with people not raining pellets down on each other and and uh you know shooting crossways and and everything else how how have you gone about with all that well that is a true a puzzle that i have to think of every morning as to how many people i can say yes to on the phone to come hunt Mm -hmm. and then when they get there where are they going to go and how many birds are they going to have and make sure they don't walk right into each other Mm mm-hmm um, usually the wind plays a big part because we haven't tried to hunt into the wind. But, of course, you have to get back to your car. Right. You go every direction. The advantage I have is I have the 520 acres and the three creeks and the five ponds. If you cross a creek, you're in the other guy's field. Mm-hmm. So that stops people from going where they shouldn't be. Mm. And then if you hear the other dog, you hear the other gun, you know somebody's there. All hunters are wise enough and smart enough and courtesy enough to not just go right to the creek and shoot through the timber yeah. at something on the other side. The rule is if it flies out of your field, it's not your bird anymore. Yep. And so even if you shot at it and wounded it, if it goes out of your field, you don't even go pursue it. Likewise, if somebody comes flying at you from their field, you can shoot it yeah. and take it home. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's good. And, and pretty much everyone obeys the rules pretty well. Pretty well. Um, like today I had one group come out. They'd never been there before. And I said, there's nobody else out there. You can go wherever you want. If a bird goes across the creek, if it goes to the other field, go ahead and help yourself. And so I have to be careful. I don't say that and send somebody else out to the field next to them. Right. Yeah. But normally, uh, like I said, you can hear the dog beeper. You can hear the gun. You can hear the mm-hmm. other person. And it's not really an issue unless I have a full farm, somebody in all seven fields at the same time. There are some fields that come right down where you're so close to the other person. Pellets could 
go at the other person. Mm. I've never had anybody get shot or anybody come back so mad they were wanting to shoot somebody. Yeah. <laughs> but I have had people a little upset because they thought they got shot at. And pellets can hurt. Um, I've been fortunate enough. Nobody's ever had an eye taken out or anything serious. But that is the biggest concern we have is safety and fun at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's critically important to get all that lined up for sure. Yeah, so so uh, you're you're not really uh, hatching birds anymore, but you're still raising them. So that you know those day old chicks that takes a lot of work. Um, are, I mean, another thing you hear about with pen raised birds is they don't have that that uh, instinct instinct to survive when they're released. Have you seen, you know, have you seen any birds that have kind of developed that through raising or even when you turn them loose, have you maybe come back? It's probably tough to tell with pheasants and quail because you could you could be stumbling on a wild bird anyways. But you ever see like a chucker that makes it through a whole year and like maybe in June you're out working in the field so you see a chucker uh, fly up or something like that? Do you ever, any proof that some of those pen-raised birds do kind of start to figure it out after you know, they survive a release? Uh, yeah, there is proof that they have survived. Chucker don't usually survive a whole year. They okay. don't do well in Iowa in the summertime. Sure. But we have had a few survive quite a while. Neighbors have told me they've seen them at their yard uh, hmm. six months after we put them out. Wow. And quail, we actually put a band on a quail before for a hunt where they wanted a money bird. Mm-hmm. So we put a band on his little leg. A year and a half later, we found a little guy. Wow. And so he survived with a covey of quail. Pheasants, every pheasant on my farm gets a pin put through their nose at five weeks of age with a little plastic thing on their beak called an anti-peck device. Okay. That so they don't peck each other? Correct. Okay. With a very high dense population in a pen, they'll peck on each other at a young age because tail feathers are high in protein. And you got a pen <laughs> full of feed and somebody's eating. You come up behind him and go, oh, I'll just peck this guy's tail to get him out of the way. Well, that was good. I'll eat it. Next thing you know, that oh. bird's eating tail feathers. Wow. The first three years I raised pheasants, I didn't do it. Then I found out the hard way. If you don't put them on, they can become cannibalistic. Wow. So every pheasant on our farm gets a blinder on so their So thousands beak. of pheasants yes. you got to do this. Wow. Time consuming. That's a major job, blinder day. It, we do it several times a year because each age group gets theirs yeah. at their time. <clears throat> so when they go out to get hunted, we catch them in a pen. We have a little catch area. We chase them into, net on a stick. We scoop them up. Everybody has a side cutter in their side in their machine to plant birds with. Every bird gets that side cutter taken, cut the blinder off. You cut the little pin out, take the blinder off their beak, and put them in the field. Oh, so you take the pin out so that they can peck again, so they can survive. So that they can plant them in the field, they can see to fly and they're back to normal and they'll be okay. Ah, uh, I now, was wondering about that. When yeah. the hunter harvests a bird and he comes back and he's got one with a long tail and big spurs and he's sure he's got a wild bird. All you have to do is pick it up and look at the beak. Hmm. If you can see through the beak, it was in my pen. It had a blinder on it. How long? How often do you, they catch a wild one? You'd be surprised. We do have quite a few on our farm because okay. we have such good cover out there. Yeah, yeah but that so. means one of my pen raised birds laid eggs. Hmm. Oh yeah. So what happens is either I put so many birds out, the predators 
eat my birds and the wild ones make it or some of mine survive because we have pheasants on our farm. Yeah. When I mow strips and take care of my fields, I see birds out there year-round. Yeah. Wow. Full-grown pheasants year-round. If you shoot one and catch one look at its beak, if it has that hole in the blinder, I don't care how old it is, it's still got it, and it came out of my pen. So they can shoot hen or roosters on, Correct. on your farm. Oh, man. And if we look at that beak and it has a hole in it, I don't care how long a tail it has, it was growing up on the farm. It might be a year or two old because we can put them out there and they can survive and still have the hole in the beaks. Yeah. I can tell. Yeah, you ever get right. albino pheasants? We have some once in a while that are awful white, not total albino. Okay. Once in a great while, my supplier says he found like, like one and a half a million. Oh, yeah. We wow. had one on our farm for two years and uh, could only ever get, got a couple crappy, crappy pictures. And then my brother-in-law was out here and he saw it. And he, he went to pull up his camera and we were a ways away and he put his, and he had a really nice camera and he put the window down and my dad was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, cause you know, as soon as they heard the window going down, that thing took off and never got a good picture of it, but it was albino. It was a white pheasant. That's and, cool. Uh, Steve Northcutt, our neighbor even saw it. Uh, but they're, they're fascinating looking creatures. They're beautiful. There are actually about 25 different kinds of pheasants that are all completely different colored. Hmm. You mean within the ringneck pheasant or? No, not <coughs> ringnecks. Okay. From China, there are 25 or more different wow. kinds of pheasants. Hmm. I used to have a dozen different kinds. And the uh, mink and raccoons decided to get in the pen and killed them all. So we don't have anything right oh. now. now. Wait, last- what? why? What's the difference in them? Like, do they vary They're greatly? They're completely different size, color, song, everything about them. Why do you mm. have different ones then? Well, I had them just for people to see and yeah. to look at. I go to animal swap meets and buy a pair, and we would raise them just for the fun of it. Oh. And once in a while, my nephew would mount one for somebody, or some wealthy individual would have a money bird they would pay 75 to 150 dollars a bird to put one of them out there to try and hunt it Hmm. well and you had mentioned the predators how often do predators get into cages like that they rip a hole in the net and climb right in every Hmm. year different times different nets different pins it happens yes oh yeah that's gotta be that's gotta be pretty frustrating you know another thing while we're kind of on the topic of wildlife interacting with your farm do you see, you know, with so much hunt, you know, presence of hunters there, do you see many like deer or uh, turkeys or um, I suppose you could even put in there coyotes and, and other, you know, large wildlife species? Or do they, do they kind of stay clear because, you know, during hunting season, there's people out in the fields all the time and guns going off and dogs running around? How have you observed the wildlife beyond, you know, the the game birds as upland birds like pheasants and quail using? That's an interesting and surprising answer. They don't seem to care. Hmm. For some reason, deer know the difference between birdshot and slugs. Huh. Huh. I think it's the sound of the gun. And we don't plant birds in the timber. So, in other words, whole bird season, guys are out there driving around. First thing in the morning, the very first guy out at 7.30 with a quad might see a few trot over the hill in front of him. You'll go out there and you see these big deer beds. They love my cover. They're out there sleeping wow. everywhere. Dozens wow. of them. What, go down. what kind of grass do they? Because you've bought short and tall stuff from us. So. Yeah, they like the big blue. Okay. And mm. switchgrass. Yeah. Good to know. And they'll go and they'll 
we had a tornado go through and throw a bunch of trees down. Mm-hmm. So they'll go down in the timber and hang out in those trees. And as soon as the hunters are gone, they'll go right back out and bed down where they were. Man. It's amazing. I don't let people deer hunt anymore because we're too busy birding. Right, yeah, but yeah. we see deer tracks and deer beds. They ate a whole bunch of our corn this year. My dad was upset how much corn they ate. They huh. are oblivious to all the hunting. 3,000 people shot at 15,000 birds, and the deer go, so what? <laughs> and they didn't seem to even that care. That's really that insane. Yeah, that's, that is not what I would have expected. No. What about... What about uh, on the smaller scale, do you see a lot of uh, bees and butterflies in your pollinator fields? Unbelievable the amount of pollinators mm, and bugs we awesome. have. The fish in the pond have gotten bigger and done awesome because Whoa, of the bugs that are so in the CRP fields around the ponds. You, if you go down there, drive around the pond in the evening, my wife and I will, and the barn swallows and the purple martins come in by the thousands and feed off the bugs. Man. Dragonflies and... Uh, Praying mantis and walking sticks will be on your machine when you get back to the house. <laughs> and there are so many bugs out there. If you shut the machine off, the whole cover is just a buzz constantly. Man, that's awesome. Thousands and thousands of kinds and shapes and colors will come out of the radiator of the tractor after I mow past <laughs> yeah. in there when I do the CRP mow in September before the hunters go out. That is so crazy. I'm going to use that clip as an ad. For later, yeah, that's <laughs> that's did not yeah, tell that's him really, to say that's that. really interesting. Yeah. Now, now, uh, do you get just inundated with predators then during release season because you have so many, so many quail and pheasants and chuck around the ground? Do just every coyote in the area and every raccoon and yes. Mink? The right now when people are harvesting and just before is our worst time. After mm. the crops are out, there's a lot more bare ground and predators right. can hunt in the open fields for field mice and things. Mm-hmm. But before everybody harvest, the predators find my pins and go, well, I can't find anything anywhere else. It's here. I'm going to get in there one way or another. Mm-hmm. We've had possums, skunks, mink, and coyote all try and tear into or get in our pens in the last two months. Mm-hmm. But, but what about even like once you're releasing them out into the field? Do you get a lot of pressure from you know hawks and eagles and, and all that stuff during hunting season? It's almost like the dinner bell went off. Yeah. <laughs> a four-wheeler drives out there, and hawks are always there. We'll even have owls come out in daytime if it's a wow. cloudy day. Because the food source is so readily available. Mm-hmm. You put the bird to sleep, and a hunter will come back and say, yeah, we saw a hawk or an owl or an eagle fly down and grab it right in front of us. Wow. <laughs> it happens a lot. Yeah, that's a that's a tough part of it then. We have an eagle nest we can see from our house. Mm. They built it a couple years ago. It blew out of a tree about six months ago. A few weeks later, they were building another one in the same tree. I can't see it now because the leaves are on the tree, but I can see it from my kitchen. Wow. And them eagles, we see them fly over the farm, sit out by the ponds. They're fishing our ponds. They're eating our birds. I'm pretty sure they're eating pheasant, chucker, and quail. And I don't know if they actually take the ones that are sleeping or if they get ones that are just out there. But they're hunting all the time. And hawks, we have generations of hawks out there. I have a guy that comes to my place to train his hawk. In other words, he has a, a, a license to be, oh, I can't think of the name of the word, but he catches wild hawks and trains them to hunt at my farm and gets birds from me to work with and goes out and hunts with them. Wow. And then after so many years of that, he lets them go and catches another one. So sometimes he comes and catches one from my place to get rid of it for me 
and to use it for his own hobby. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. You never have people come out and go coon hunting? Yes. But you can't charge for that, right? That's like it's you're free. Not... I don't charge for coon hunting. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. 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 <laughs> I could imagine. Yeah. No charge. <laughs> yeah, or do you have any trappers that come out and trap for that stuff? Yes, but they have to be careful. You have to use a trap that dogs cannot get caught in right, yeah. or go off my preserve. Mm-hmm. So a lot of guys will plant just like on the fence line or 100 feet off my preserve, and they catch the fattest, healthiest coons and foxes <laughs> you ever saw. Damn. I bet, yeah. My wife and I, we want a fox, so a red fox so bad for a pet. <laughs> we just, you know, because I heard they're, you know, they're not quite, they're obviously not as domesticated as dogs, but they can be pretty tame, you know, but... Also, there's those stories of like, yeah, it was a great fox, and all of a sudden one day it switched on and attacked my kid, and you're like, oh, well, maybe. maybe yeah, we I think you need fox. to watch a certain documentary on Netflix called Tiger King oh, before man. you start domesticating <laughs> no. wild animals. Very different animals, <laughs> but man, so I'm curious when when you've got your pheasants and your quail and your chucks in the pens, what is the leading cause of death for them? Because there's a bunch. Obviously, we talk about predators, but what what gets the most of them? If a mink gets in, the worst they've ever done is killed 401 night. Whoa. Wow. Out Typically, of how many? Like a thousand? There was a thousand in the pen, yeah. Mm. And, the, and, and minks just suck the blood, right? Correct. You can hardly even tell they were killed. They look like they just fell over dead. You look really close and spread the feathers back, and either on the chest or on the back of the neck, there'll be two little holes. And they suck the blood out through the blood veins, and they'll pull them underneath something so they don't get whacked by the feathers, and suck the blood out and just leave it, and then go get another one. And usually you can figure out where they got in because they'll try and take one home with them after mm. they've killed a bunch. Mm. Sometimes they'll just kill a couple dozen. Sometimes they'll kill 50. Sometimes 100. Once in a while, just two or three. But usually if a mink gets in, he kills a lot. Mm. And they may not come back again for a week, for a month, for a year. They might come back the next night. It's really weird, their pattern. That's crazy because mm. they're, they're what? Like you release a bird at like $20 a bird. So 25 per chuck or per pheasant this year, 20 per chuck. So, yeah. I mean, you're talking about thousands and thousands it, of dollars. It's probably my biggest expense to my profit is predators to get in my pen. Yes. Really? And then, like chickens, chickens can kill themselves if they get scared. They bunch up in a corner. Do your yes. do pheasants that, and that's the second uh, major cause of death is when we're feeding them or something scares them from the edge or when we're just trying to catch them to put out for hunters, they'll fly into a wall or a post and break their neck. Mm. Oh my goodness! That's mm. why that's why uh, people back in the day used to say they had bird brains. That's you right, know, yeah. just the dumbest dumbest thing. Yeah. So you catch one, how do you put it to sleep? Well, we have a machine, a four-wheeler, and we have a box on the back that my dad built that has compartments, uh, six compartments, and each one's big enough to hold three or four birds. And we catch the birds and put them in the box, go out in the field, and with leather gloves on, one of my help will put their hand in the box and pull one pheasant out at a time by the legs. Why with leather, why with leather gloves on? Because if you don't have the spurs, will rip your arm up and cause infection. Oh, man. Oh, uh, uh, make you bleed because sounds like so you sharp. uh sounds like you learned that from experience yes uh the spurs are nasty they're so incredibly sharp if you're not careful when we're catching them they'll fly by you and scratch your face or your arms and when you're taking them out of the box they'll scratch your chest or your neck or your anything they can reach with their legs because mm. when you put them to sleep you put their head 
under their wing and squeeze them and wrap your hands around them and squeeze really hard. And it's, if you've ever watched All-Star Wrestling do a sleeper hold, it's basically the same thing. <laughs> it cuts the blood flow off to their head and they go unconscious for a few minutes. And if you squeeze them too hard, too long, you can possibly kill them. But they think they're going to die when you're doing it, so they kick really hard to try and get away. So when they're kicking really hard, they're about done. When they quit kicking, you lay them on their side, on their head, in the grass. Don't try and cover them up. While they're kicking and you're squeezing, you kick a hole in the grass with your foot. You lay them down in it. You take your hands off and back away and leave them lay there. Four or five minutes later, they'll pull the head up from their wing. They'll set up. They'll look around. They don't know where they're at. They're in a bunch of grass and cover. Last thing they know, they were in their pen they grew up in. So they just kind of get up and walk around a little bit, and they leave a scent trail. That's where the dog comes in. The dog comes along and finds a scent trail, and if the birds walk much, he'll follow it. If the bird walks, he'll follow it. And then if it's a pointer, he'll point. If it's a flusher, he'll flush it. And that completes experience when the bird gets up and you shoot it and the dog retrieves it. Sometimes they find the bird where we planted it. More, normally, it's moved somewhere else. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's interesting to hear the whole process there. Uh, man, you know, the whole process is really cool. Most pointing dogs lock up eyes with the bird. The bird in the pen, it's fun to watch them growing up. Because as they're growing up and they're about half grown, a rooster will squat and put his wings out and spin in circles and look around and then just freeze. And then jump up in the air and run off or fly. He's practicing for that escape in the field. Because when a bird sees a dog in the field, he looks at it. And he says, I'm not going to move until that dog looks the other direction and doesn't see me go. Oh. The dog looks at the bird and he goes, I'm not blinking. I'm not moving. I'm not looking away. Because <laughs> when I do, he leaves. <laughs> so they're having a stare down. And a real good bird and a real good dog will give you 10 or 15 minutes, literally. Whoa. If you just let them. Whoa. They will not look away. It's incredible. That's crazy. Yeah. We've timed it and tried it. Yeah. So eventually you walk up there and the bird sees you and he goes, ah. And he'll either flush because he sees you or the dog will jump because the bird looked away and then you shoot. Yeah. But that sense of stare, yeah. I'm not leaving, I'm not looking away, I'm not looking away, is really incredible. That's what a good hunter gets to see. If you have a good dog and the conditions are right, you can walk up there and that dog just stands there. A lot of my clients have dogs so well trained, they have to walk up and touch the dog on the butt before to leave the bird. Yeah. That way it doesn't run off on them. Yeah. Well, then if you have more than one dog, you have to find your dog. So they have to have a beeper collar on their dog so they can figure out where it's yep. at because the cover is so thick they can't find it. Yep. yep. Wow. But that, that, that's I, I have dogs that are that good. It's just fun as heck to watch them. Yeah. That yeah. That's, so when cool. it, that's when it's, it's so fun. And, and uh, yeah, I have both my dogs point, and that's that's true. Then they'll just stay there. And, and uh, it's almost like – that's when you wish you had a pointer and a flusher because in the flusher, you know, they just charge in there and let's get this thing going, you know. <laughs> but my um, guys that guide for me a lot have that same thought process. Uh, Sam Pyrick does a lot of guiding for me, bought him a little flusher last year, named it Flusher. It's trained <laughs> to stay right beside him, just kind of run around his feet. So it does. So the pointers are out, run every which way, and they'll point, they'll lock up, they won't leave the bird. He gets the group ready, gets them positioned. He always clients he's guiding for, has them take their safety off and get their gun ready. Then he walks up and he used to have to get down his hands and knees and get the bird out of the grass. Well, then the 
people are shooting over top of you and yeah. you're down your hands and knees. And so he got flusher. He gets up there and he goes, get him flusher. And flusher runs out and gets the bird up. <laughs> and then the whole process is done. And he has two kinds of dogs doing the process. And that's that cool. way, both of them do their job. Yeah, that's wow. cool. That's, that's fun. That's a lot of fun. But, you know, something that exists in the hunting world and, and we would be, we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't, didn't address this too. You know, people think that, oh, that's not real hunting. That's not, you know, that's not, uh, you're not hunting wild animal, you know, wild birds. So where's, is, is there real value? Are you just out there shooting? And honestly, before I did it, I didn't know how to think about it exactly. You know, I didn't think it was like wrong. I didn't think it was, you know, unethical or, or anything like that. But I just didn't know. You don't know what you don't know, right? And so I got invited to go by a, a member out there uh, through a friend. And I had a great time. And so, okay, yeah, that's fine. You have a great time. But that still doesn't answer the question, right? But what I realized was we still, like, we put in a lot of steps. Our dogs got a lot of work. And, yes, we purchased these birds, ate them they were delicious i go to fairway or high v and i buy a chicken and i eat it and it's delicious right but what was my work what was my connection to any land what was the value of working with these dogs that were bred for hunting and let's be honest especially here in iowa we have a pretty short pheasant season the end of uh, October, usually it's right around Halloween or sometimes the first of November. And then the 10th of January is when it ends. That's a pretty short window. And you own, if you own a bird dog, that means what? Nine months out of the year, that thing's not doing what it's meant to do. You know, it actually more like nine and a half months. And, and when you start thinking about all those things, you realize that not only is this fun, but, and, and, not nothing wrong with the ethics. I'm sure there could be a way like some, it, you know, there might be an operation out there that does things kind of questionably or something, but, but definitely not the case at Ben six. Everything's done very ethically. It's a, it's a, it, it feels like a real hunt, you know, where you're hunting, you know, wild birds somewhere. You're looking at beautiful landscape. You're supporting a, a person who wants to use their land in a different way than just what everyone says you have to use farmland for. And you're working pretty hard to get that meal that you're going to eat later. You know, you're, work, you're working way harder than you are just going to the grocery store and picking up a, a chicken to eat for dinner. And when you put all that together, I plan to come back, you know, and I encourage other people other people who are in into hunting and who have never tried it before to give it a try and you, you see that it is it is a genuine uh, hunting experience in a lot of ways and and something that provides a lot of value um, that people who've never tried it before don't understand would you agree with all those things Jack yes absolutely we've uh been at this for 21 years now and i had a lot of people that were hardcore hunters they thought i've never paid it and i'm mm. all i'm ever going to shoot is roosters and we've had a lot of those guys change their mind when all of a sudden they went to where they always went 
well, the guy sold the farm. I can't go anymore. Mm-hmm. And also they got, well, where am I going to go? I have the dog. I have the gun. I have grandkids I want to take out. Mm-hmm. I want to create memories for them. And how do I create a good memory mm-hmm. and a lasting memory unless it's a fun event? Right, yeah. And so to have it be a canned hunt or a coordinated hunt is one way to look at it. The other way is it's a memory that's created that you can't duplicate. Right. Because it's hard to replicate while bird hunting. Yep. We don't make our birds pets. We don't go in there and set and hand feed them and tame them down. I'm almost positive that pheasants cannot imprint. Mm. They don't become pets ever. Quail will. Mm. Quail will become your buddy. You can make a quail a pet. (laughs) But we make a point not to. And the chucker, too, they're wild birds. They never get tame. If they don't jump and fly from you walk in the pen, they don't feel good. Mm. So we put a bird out in my cover to hunt. There's never a question of, is he going to come walking up to you and say, are you going to feed me? Yeah, right. They are not imprinted. They are right. not tame. They are going to do everything they can to avoid you. I have the biggest problem I have is people here the first time come back and go, well, they flew faster than I thought they were going to, so I missed them all. <laughs> That's right. I kind of looked the other way and grinned because I'm thinking, yeah, you thought it was going to be a canned hunt, and it was more like wild bird hunt. Mm. And then I'll have the guy that come back and says, man, those things were fast. That was fun. I had a really good hunt. It was more like wild birding than I thought it would be. Yep. And I'll be back because it was a progressive hunt. I got to shoot something. My dog got a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And I got to do something that was fun and take my grandkid, not him go, I want to go home. I'm bored. Right. Because yeah. that happens while bird hunting. Yep. It's like going fishing and the fish aren't biting. Yeah. You can't make a fish bite. Right. But hunting, you can make the habitat and the cover and the yeah. bird all there at my yep. place. Yeah, yep. you can make it totally your fault if you miss the bird. Not just, yeah. oh, the fish aren't biting, but it could be, oh, I missed that shot because those right. birds were there. And it sounds like, you know, somewhere between buying chicken at High V and um, hunting a wild pheasant in 1820, uh, it sounds like you're in between, but you really lean further to hunting wild birds than people would ever guess um and yeah, it's it, a gen it's a genuine experience when you go there you don't feel like you know oh i'm in this heavily manicured area yeah. no it's like you feel like you're you're walking you know what it felt like it felt like hunting um field terraces in a yeah. lot of ways uh which i do a lot hmm. you know like uh, uh because of the way you do both crops and you have crp and it, it was just, it felt like a genuine Iowa pheasant hunt. And and something else I wanted to point out is, is people like a challenge, but they hate like a hopeless challenge, right? You can hunt mm. in 500 tall grass acres and, and not flush anything, especially, you know, if it's totally wide open, they don't even, and you don't have a dog, like good luck getting them to flush. They're just going to oh, run around you. Yeah. Like good, unless you got 12 guys with you. So so what you're creating is is an awesome challenge, and you can apparently you can make it as challenging or as easy. Well, not totally, no, full easy, but like you can release tons of birds if they want to pay for it. So people can kind of pick their difficulty mode. Um, but you create a uh, you create a challenging but um, fulfilling and uh, successful experience, and that is really cool. Yeah, you know as we. Uh wind this one down jack and and even along with what nick was saying there you clearly have a deep value and connection to your farm 
And I think another value piece in there with kind of what Nick's talking about there is when you're bringing these people out, you're showing them prairie. You're showing them, hey, these are those natives. You just rattled off 10 of them when we started this podcast, and that's way more than the average Iowan knows about the species that belong here, right? And so people can go there and have that education by by being in it and interacting with it and and, and uh, living closer to the land. But as you look at, so it's your legacy right now. Well, it, it's your time, right? You're leaving, you're making your legacy, but it's your time to be operating those acres. As you look to the future for your family, what do you hope the legacy continues to be out there at on your family's 520 acres? Obviously, it's changed a lot, even in your lifetime, all the different things that you guys have done out there, which is just so cool to see. And as you look towards the future and who's going to be operating out there and, and owning the land, what do you hope that legacy is for for your family's 520 acres, you know, even going 50 years from now? Well, my hope is that my nephew and my, my second wife, um, she has some kids that are married, and they're about that age, and I'm hoping maybe they will want to take the hunting farm over someday and keep it going. Hmm. I've built this business that uh, somebody's going to have to catch the birds and put them out in the grass and answer the phone. Yeah. And I can do a lot for a long time, but eventually I'm going to want to spend more time with my wife on vacation instead mm-hmm. of constantly being on the farm. And I hope that someday some of the other family members can take over and uh, keep the whole thing going that I've worked so hard to do. The CRP is easy enough to manage. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anything, we might put more in so that we can farm less. Mm. My dad is 95 and still planted the corn and beans. And That's awesome. We had the combine and harvested the corn and beans this year. I'm not sure how many more he can do, but at 95, he did a really good job again. Yeah, wow. That's that's impressive. It's incredible. It really is. I I think back 30 years ago, what we were doing when I was his age now, he worked so hard then, it just amazes me. And he's still moving. He doesn't even think he's old. (laughs) Anyway, what I intend to do is just to keep this going as long as I can. And hopefully someday have somebody just start answering the phone for me and take over. Mm. Yeah. That's All right. Awesome. I, I got one more question for you. You can wake up tomorrow. You get on you get on your clothes. You drink your coffee. You sit in your chair. And then uh, someone comes to your door. A knock on your door. A mysterious guy. He's got glasses on. Can't really see his face. Wearing a black suit. He says, Jack, here's your... Uh, Here's a certificate, hand you a certificate. And what this means is uh, if you snap your fingers, you can change one thing about this world. Boom, you can change it. And I'm leaving it totally wide open. You can change whatever you want. What would it be? Hmm. That's a pretty heavy question. Yeah. Change one thing about the world. Uh, people would quit lying. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a full episode of a podcast. <laughs> the politicians wouldn't be able to talk. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest of us would know who to vote for, maybe. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think uh what do you think would change in agriculture if no one could lie? The yields. Hmm. People aren't making as much yield as they say. Uh. And the, You think it's just a pride pride thing, like they oh. owe to their neighbors and 
The pride in farmers goes beyond anything a person can possibly imagine. Uh, the people that compete for the record yields spend 10, what's like the guys that compete for the show calves, for the calves that take the state fair to win? That's not the calf you put in your feedlot and make your living off of. <laughs> and it's the same thing for the people that try and make three or 400 bushel an acre corn. It's not cost effective to do that on every acre of corn that we have. And so the main thing you do is just be realistic. Hmm. Man, that's uh, that is a can of worms, and I'm gonna close it. I'm gonna <laughs> seal that lid right back on. And uh, I want to bring up something you had said earlier. You said uh, what you were selling was an experience, and experiences change minds, and that's our whole point. What can we do? I cannot force people to plant prairie. I don't want to force people to plant prairie because then you know I'm so. Uh, totalitarian that that uh, and that's not a better world um so, but what i can do if i can convince people to change their mind um for better practices for better consciousness for better decisions then that's what we want to do and you guys can help us do that by spreading the word i mean we'd love it if you shared the podcast and rated it because we think that helps change people's minds but even just talking about these things hey actually it's a big deal how much plastic i use in my household actually it's a big deal how much water i'm wasting or where i get my water from or who mm. i'm uh, who i'm voting in and what the person i'm voting in believes on conservation practices now i'm not saying that that's the absolute uh, only thing that you're voting on but let's just be aware of it let's talk about it let's let's um let's cultivate our minds let's change our minds because as we know conservation happens one mind at a time.